is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here, Church of the Redeemer. Uh, welcome. We're glad to have uh, you here with us this morning. We are continuing this morning in a series that we've been doing throughout the spring, actually since Christmas time, out of the book of Hebrews. We're making our way through the book. Uh, last week, when I went home, I felt much like a story that a friend of mine in Lakeland told me once. He was preaching in Colorado Springs at an, a family member's church. Tim Strawbridge is his name. He's a really big guy. Very gregarious, but not a lot of um, not a lot of experience in preaching. And so, one of the first sermons he preached, he went out to his cousin's church and was asked to preach. And it's a fairly traditional church. And so, at the end of the service, you know, he went with the pastor to the back of the service to kind of greet people as they came out the door. And he said, along came this sweet-looking uh, gentleman who was older, kind of crotchety. He walked up, and he, you know, most typically people will shake your hand, hi, very good job, thank you. You know, thanks for being here. That was great. And he said this, this gentleman, you know, who is probably 5'4", Timo's 6'10", walks up, uh, raises kind of his eyes up, takes his hand, looks him in the eye and says, nice try. <laughs> uh, I just get a kick out of that. And that was his feedback uh, for the sermon that day. And I, that, that's how I felt last, Saturday, last Sunday afternoon. <laughs> That was a nice try. Uh, not because uh, I got that feedback from any of you, but because this, this stuff we're looking at is so important, and we really do want to take it seriously, and we want to do our best to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ week after week, and to do so with clarity and boldness and imagination. So, keep praying for us, please. Uh, we're just a bunch of young guys trying to figure this out. And so, it's, that's the great thing about doing it week after week, is because I get, I get to have another try uh, today. And so I want to look back again today at the extended quote from Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews chapter 8, and then also um, moving forward into Hebrews chapter 9. And we're going to cover a lot of the same ground we covered last week, but hopefully with more clarity this time and more practical application. At least that's my goal, okay? So let's uh, let's read this passage together. It's a rather long passage, but it's because I've got to take into account all of last week's stuff and try to get to this week's stuff too. And so uh, it's going to take us a while to read it. But follow along with me if you want to in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6, all the way through the end of the chapter, and then verses 1 through 14 in chapter 9. Okay, let's read together. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no need or have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds faults with them or with it when he says, Behold, and here he's quoting Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, call, when I establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make <coughs> excuse me, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of 
holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we can now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Pay attention to these next few verses. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and with various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, look at this verse, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is God's word. Now, if you want to know where I'm trying to go this morning, where I'm trying to get us, look at that last verse at the very bottom of the scripture passage we just read. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Look at the wording carefully. The Hebrews writer says that the blood of Christ purifies the conscience so that we can serve him. Or what it really means in the, in the Greek is that the blood of Christ purifies the conscience towards, it's a preposition there, it means towards obedience. In other words, in order to obey God from the heart, we have to first have our consciences cleansed or perfected. Those words are used interchangeably in the passage. Uh, this was the insight of Martin Luther, the German reformer. I'm reading a book um, that he wrote. Uh, you know, in my yearly reading plan. And he said, he made, this, he made this observation, he said that either you obey God in order to get his love and acceptance, or you obey because you know he's already loved and accepted you. Okay? But if you obey God in order to get him to love you, if you don't already know that he loves and accepts you in Christ Jesus, then what Luther says is, if you obey him in order to get him to love you, then your obedience is about you. You're doing it for yourself. That's what he says. So a great analogy would be, if I take out the trash on Wednesday to butter up Ashley so she'll let me play golf on Saturday, then I'm taking out the trash for who? For me. See, not for her. I'm not taking out the trash because I love her and want to serve her. I'm doing it for myself. And this is what Luther's saying, okay? If you don't know in your heart that God loves you, then your morality is idolatry. That's what he says. It's you trying to be your own savior. But real obedience happens when, you're, when you already know God loves and accepts you in Jesus. So you're motivated by gratitude and joy, not 
by fear of condemnation or spiritual pride or whatever the case may be. See, and that's what, that's what I meant when I said last week, one of the things I think I did kind of clearly communicate, is that the gospel doesn't make obedience optional. The gospel makes obedience possible. I mean, what Jeremiah promises here about the new covenant is that God is going to write the law of God, on, the law on the hearts and minds of his people. And what he means by that is that, that through the coming of the Spirit, he's going to infuse into their life a new, powerful heart dynamic for obedience. And this new power is the gospel, Romans 1.16. The truth that God loves and accepts us in Christ Jesus apart from our failures or our successes, our sins or our strengths. To know that, to know that he loves and accepts us, irrespective of our, of our moral performance, either good or bad, that's what it means to have a clean, a clean conscience. And that's what we need in order to obey him. That's what the Hebrews writer is saying here. So, Here's what we're going to do this morning. We need, we need to have our consciences cleansed. We need to be completely confident and secure in God's love for us in order to serve him. That's the argument he's making. So two things then. How does the old covenant prove powerless to do this? Secondly, how does the new covenant provide the power to have the conscience cleansed? And then I just want to make some applications. Okay? I want to look at that passage from Jeremiah 31 and apply and show us how the gospel really is the power for obedience in a bunch of different directions. So that's where we're going, okay? How does the old covenant prove powerless? How does the new covenant provide the power? And then I want to apply from Jeremiah 31. So first, how is the old covenant powerless to perfect the conscience, which is what we need? Okay, look, the Hebrews writer is making this argument. Okay, he's saying that the old covenant is incomplete and insufficient and therefore inferior to what's coming in the new covenant in Jesus Christ which Jeremiah promises, because, verse 9 of Hebrews 9, because it could not, and that word, that word means it did not possess the power to perfect the conscience. In fact, it was designed to do the exact opposite. The way the Puritans used to say it is the law, or the old covenant, was, was designed to wound the conscience. So look there at verse 8, at the way the Hebrews writer describes the ministry of the old covenant. Very important verse right there. By this, all these things he's describing about the tent and the, and the first and second, you know, holy place and all this, the, you know, the regulations that he's going through here. By all these things, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places, that is, into God's presence, into, you know, the very throne room of God is not yet opened. So the whole system was set up by God to teach a very powerful spiritual lesson. And the lesson was this. It was to inform the conscience in this way. God is holy. You are a sinner. You can't come in. You can't get to God. He's holy. You're a sinner. You can't come in. The way's barred. Okay? And the illustration that he uses to, to, to teach this truth is the architecture of the temple or of the, of the tent, which is verses 1 through 5. And he says a couple things there. Do you see that? He says there's a first section called the holy place, verse 2. And then behind a curtain, and then there's this huge curtain that, that weighs, I can't even remember the dimensions and how much it weighs, but it, it's this, this basically impenetrable curtain. And behind the curtain is the second section called the most holy place. And in that holy of holies is where the ark of the covenant, verse 3, resides. And only the priests are allowed to go into the first holy place. But only the high priest, one of the priests, is allowed to go into the most holy place. And only he can go one day a year. And not without first undergoing this elaborate process of preparation involving sacrifices and bloodbaths and the like. 
right? This is weird. It's strange. I mean, it sounds like something out of a Conan the Barbarian movie or something, doesn't it? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Some pagan, you know, it, it really is this, it is this strange system. So what's the point? And the clue to understanding all of it is the allusion in verse 5 to the cherubim, which were part of the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. And when you read that, if you were, if you were Jewish and you, know, you, you read this, you would immediately think of the story of Adam and Eve who sinned against God. And because they sinned, they were exiled. They were sent away from God's presence. If you remember the early chapters of Genesis, they lived with God in his garden. And then because they sinned, God kicked them out of his garden to wander the earth apart from him. And do you remember the story? To make sure they didn't try to sneak back into the garden to eat from the tree of life, he posted two cherubim with flaming swords at the gate, the eastern gate to the Garden of Eden, to keep them out. And that story is why these two cherubim are here on top of the Ark of the Covenant. They're positioned over the mercy seat with flaming swords because they're guarding the way to God. The cherubim... Here, in the Holy of Holies, is a powerful reminder to all of us that the way to God is barred because of sin. And this spiritual existential reality has imprinted itself on the human soul, and the result is what we find here, a guilty or what I'm going to call a noisy conscience. In other words, we live, because of this spiritual reality we're describing, of having been, because of sin, kicked out, and removed from God's presence, and the way is now guarded by these cherubim with flaming swords. The, the spiritual reality that's imprinted itself on our souls is a, a guilty or a noisy conscience, this nagging sense of condemnation or accusation or fear, dread or foreboding that just kind of exists right here. And I've, I think I've, I've um, ex- described this to you before, but, but in me in particular, this sense of, of guilt... And, and fear and condemnation is so profound. I often find myself, you know, I may be sitting on the couch watching television, and I'll think, oh, I'm just, oh, I can just feel it's in here. And I can't even remember why I feel that way. Does this happen to anybody else? It's just there. And I've got to think, wait a minute, why do I feel this? Oh, yeah. But, I, but for like 10 minutes, I may even know, it's just there, and I don't even know why it's there. It's just a sense of foreboding and guilt and con- sense of, accusation, right, that just, that just is just here that we live with. That's what the Bible means by a guilty or a noisy conscience. So what's the solution, right? If what we need is to be rid of it so that we can serve God, how do we get rid of a guilty conscience, this abiding sense of shame and foreboding? Well, the answer in religion is always something we should do. It's always offer a sacrifice or follow a rule or do this or do this. Or do this. It's always salvation by works. That's always the solution that religion gives you. Salvation by works. Uh, Martin Luther, again, I've been been reading about him, so he's kind of at the forefront of my imagination. Luther uh, was a very devout person, but he knew that what he needed was a righteousness. He knew that, that, that because of his sin and because God was holy, that what he needed was to prove to God that he was worthy of love and acceptance. And so his solution to that was to become a monk. And his biographer wrote it this way. He said, Luther became a monk to save his own soul. He became a monk because it was the only thing he could think to do that might make him worthy of God's love. But even inside of, of his order of monks, Luther would do all these crazy things. He, the, the, the common fast would be for one day, but Luther would fast for three or seven or ten. He would starve himself. He would refuse blankets at night so that he would literally shake 
uh, freezing to death because he felt like if he could just prove his devotion to God through making himself, you know, beating himself and suffering in some way, that maybe God would look and be pleased. All of this in an attempt to offer some kind of obedience to God that he would find acceptable, and that's religion. See, Luther was a devout Catholic before there were Protestants, but he was religious. He had yet to discover the gospel. And here's where the Old Covenant does its work, okay? Here's what this passage is teaching us, is that it's designed to leave you guilty. This is what the Hebrews writer means when he says, verse 9, look, that the sacrifices that the people offered could not perfect the conscience of the worshipers. They couldn't quiet their conscience. In other words, when a person came and they made sacrifices, they, they couldn't leave on the other side of that sacrifice assured and confident in God's love for them. The same sense of condemnation and guilt and accusation stayed with them. There's no way underneath the legislation of the Old Covenant for them to get rid of the guilty conscience. And so the problem with religion, okay, this is we're contrasting the religion with the gospel. The problem with religion, religion, the reason it is inferior is it leaves you with one motivation for obedience to God. And that's guilt. I mean, the problem, according to Hebrews, is that in any works-based religious system, at the end of all of your sacrifices, on the other side of all of your good works, you know, all the things that Martin Luther did, you know, at the end of all of that stuff, the conscience feels just as guilty as it did before you did all those things. Nothing Martin Luther did made him feel any better about the state of his soul. He felt no more righteous at the end of all of his moral strivings than he did at the beginning because religion is powerless to quiet the conscience. It can't get rid of the guilt. In fact, all it does is exacerbate it. Richard Lovelace, who's a professor at Gordon Cromwell Theological Seminary, has written a book called The Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal, and he talks about this. He says the problem is that inside of the church, inside of Christianity, you know, the American evangelical Christian scene, the problem is, is that there are a lot of Christians who really aren't Christians, they're religious. And he says, he says, the problem, see, religion doesn't satisfy the conscience on the deepest level, and so religious people, here's how he describes these people inside the church, but not really full of the gospel of grace, really kind of still striving in a religious system. He says, they live with a powerful underlying insecurity. So consciously, they defend themselves as dedicated Christians who are as good as anybody else, but underneath the conscious level, there's a deep despair and self-rejection. Just the problem with religion is it creates people who aren't confident, who aren't assured of God's love for them in Christ, who are radically insecure, who don't know where they stand with God, and therefore, the only powerful motive in their life for obedience is guilt. They're just guilty. We feel guilty, and so we try to deal with our guilt the way Martin Luther did. But this is, you know, that guilt, obedience motivated by guilt is not the kind of obedience that God desires. Ladies, you know what this feels like. Flowers from a man who is feeling guilty about something and flowers for no reason at all are two completely different things. Can I get an amen? Right? There you go. See? The women know this. Flowers from a man who feels guilty don't count for anything. Because who's he giving the flowers to? Himself. Not you. He's in trouble. And he's trying to get out of trouble. And that's the problem with religion. See? is the only motivation it provides is guilt. And what it does is it creates selfish, narcissistic people who try to obey God because they feel guilty, but they're just obsessed with themselves. It's all about them. 
And so the problem with the Old Covenant was that it could not. It was powerless to quiet the conscience. It couldn't get rid of the guilt. Uh, the na- this nagging feeling of condemnation. And therefore, it left people without a power source for obedience to God. See, we have to have our consciences cleansed, purified from dead works, Hebrews says, verse 14, in order to serve God. And that's what the gospel offers, a quiet conscience, a conscience completely free of any accusation. Now, just a brief digression before I get into this with the gospel. Uh, this is not just a problem for religious people. In Romans 2, chapter 14 and 15, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says that the conscience of all people, religious and irreligious, all people bears witness to the truth that God exists that he deserves to be worshipped and served with every breath, that we deserve to be punished uh, because we're constantly falling short of, of this ideal of serving and worshipping God. So if you're here this morning and you're a person and you would say, you know, I don't know that I'm, I'm not really into all this religious stuff. What the Bible's teaching is that if you, if you were still long enough and if you listened carefully enough, your conscience will begin to work on you. But be careful. Because the way irreligious people tend to try to deal with their conscience is by becoming religious people. Do you know what I mean by that? Right? The conscience begins to yell, you're a failure, you're a bad person. And so the strategy becomes, well, then I'm going to become a good person. So the strategy is moral reformation. I'm going to become religious. But the religion, again, does nothing to quiet their conscience. If anything, it just increases the guilt and the foreboding. And this is where Christianity and religion are so different. See, Christians aren't good people who never do anything wrong, as opposed to non-Christians who are bad people who do bad things. That's, see, that's religion. Christians are scoundrels. Big, nasty, bad sinners who deal with their conscience not through the promise of moral ref- reformation, but through gospel, gospel substitution. See, In contrast to religion, the gospel informs your conscience this way. Remember, how does religion inform your conscience? God is holy, you're a sinner, you can't come in. But the gospel informs the conscience in a completely different direction. The gospel informs the conscience like this. You're a sinner, and you're loved. So come in. Come close. Come confidently. I mean, Martin Luther's grand discovery... That, that sparked the Reformation, that led to the Protestant church, which we all should be very grateful for because we're in a Protestant church, right? It was, was this Latin phrase that he used, simul justus et peccator. See, the great discovery was that salvation is not by works, salvation is by grace. And what he meant by that Latin phrase is that we are simultaneously sinners and justified, that I am simultaneously at the same time a sinner who deserves to be condemned and Perfectly righteous before God because my righteousness is an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that's Christ's righteousness that's given to me by faith. And it's so counterintuitive, isn't it? It's so radical. How can it possibly be? And the answer the book of Hebrews again gives. And if we haven't caught on by now, holy cow, we should be ashamed of ourselves. Because he's saying the same thing to us week after week. And his answer is this. We have a high priest who's passed through the heavens and entered into the very presence of God, not by virtue of the blood of bulls and goats, do you see there, verses 11 through 14, but by virtue of the sacrifice of himself for the sins of the people. And then in verse 14, he says that it is the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross that can purify the conscience. And so the cross, see, the cross is where you go to get your conscience cleansed. 
The cross is the place where the conscience gets perfected because the cross reminds us on the one hand that we're sinners. Jesus stood there condemned because of us in our place. He is condemned as a sinner because we are sinners and he stood in for us as our high priest. So the cross reminds us that we are sinners, but it also reminds us that even though we're sinners, we're loved and accepted because of Jesus' death there in our place. So what you do see is in religion, you try to quiet your conscience by proving that your conscience is wrong about you. And by by, um, promising grand moral reformation. But in the gospel, you quiet your conscience by agreeing with it (laughs) and then reasoning with it. And here's what I mean. When your conscience starts to accuse and the feelings of guilt and the foreboding and the fear and the condemnation come, you agree. I mean, don't, don't try to argue with a guilty conscience. Admit the truth. I mean, we sang, right? Guilty, vile, helpless, we. I mean, that's, that's not trying to disprove the claims of the conscience. That's agreement. That's saying, yes, that, that's right. That's who I am. And so first you, you agree, right? You, you have to agree with the conscience, and the gospel gives you the courage and the freedom to do that. And then what you do is on the other side of that, you begin to reason with the conscience. You take it. You take all the feelings of inadequacy and regret and guilt and you take them to the cross. And so when your heart condemns you, John says in John's letter, you have to reassure your heart with this truth. Yes, that's true of me. And God knows all of that about me. And he loves me still. See, the result, according to John, of being able to do that, see, his love for me, The truth is his love for me is greater than any failure, any sin, any screw-up, any regret. And the result, when that truth begins begins to sink down into your heart, John says, is we can have confidence before God. We can can live assured of his love for us. We, We can have absolute confidence before God. And that's what it means to live with a perfected conscience, to know what Paul says in Romans 8, that there is nothing, neither height nor depth nor death, nor life, nor principality, nor power, no sin, no failure, no mistake, no regret, nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You guys are catching on. That was an amen moment. Good job. Right? And when the truth begins to sink down in your heart, then it'll free you to obey and serve him. That's the point. It'll give you a new power for obedience. That's what it means for the law to get written on your heart. It comes inside. There's this new power in your life. that You see, obedience to God doesn't come from trying harder, but from trying hard not to try hard. Remember? Gospel obedience isn't striving. It's striving not to strive. It's striving to rest. And so the gospel makes obedience possible. Now, let me just make three applications, and then I'm done, of how the gospel makes obedience possible in the following areas, okay? So I really, I wanted this to be practical. I want you to, we're going to contrast the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in the way the gospel makes obedience possible possible in these following areas. Just these three things I mentioned last week. Let's go back to them again. Okay, intimacy versus formality. Okay, the promise of the new covenant, if you look back there in Jeremiah, uh, in the the quote from Jeremiah 31, is intimacy with God. They shall not teach each one and each his neighbor or his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, the Lord, he says there in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11. And that word know means much more than intellectual cognition. It means to be intimate with. Um, St. Teresa of Avila, a Roman Catholic mystic in the 16th century, for example, just made a people very uncomfortable. 
because she described her relationship with God as these periodic moments of spiritual ecstasy or rapture or even climax or intoxication. And people really started to get really nervous. And I confess that I hear that and I say in my heart, that's, that's ridiculous, right? But is it? And the reason it sounds so ridiculous to me is that for me and for most of us and most people who call themselves Christians, their, our relationship with God is much more formality than it is intimacy. See, the feel of religion is distance and formality. That's what all that in Hebrews 9 is about there. <clears throat> but the gospel makes intimacy possible. It's power toward intimacy with God. See, in religion, there's always this, this distance and formality because you never know where you stand, right? See, that's, that's, what, that's the problem with religion. Religion can't perfect the conscience, and the result is that it isn't quiet. It's always condemning you. The conscience is always whispering in your ear, you blew it that time. Boy, God must really be angry with you because of that. You know, how could you be so stupid? And, and even after all of the sacrifices, all of the ceremonies, all of the do-gooding, it's still not quiet. You don't know where you stand. And you tell me, if you don't know where you stand with somebody, how do you relate to that person? Keep your distance. You're certainly not vulnerable. See, that's what religion always produces. Radically insecure people who spend their lives trying to prove themselves to God so that he will love and accept them. And the irony is, is the flurry of spiritual activity. You know, religion is this flurry. And this was, this was the Christianity I grew up in with, okay? This, this flurry of spiritual activity and busyness, church two or three times a week, multiple ministry commitments, but no intimacy. So how does the gospel create intimacy? In order for there to be intimacy, vulnerability, nakedness, you have to feel secure. You have to know where you stand with God. There can't be any doubt, and that's what the gospel of Jesus offers. We can be absolutely, 100% confident of God's love for us. Listen to this verse from Romans 5. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. Paul says the Father sent the Son to die for us while we were still sinners. So when you prove to be a sinner, does it disqualify you from God's love? No, because he didn't love you in the first place because you weren't a sinner. You see that? You can know where you stand. And the result, see, the gospel's power for intimacy. Secondly, let's talk about equality versus exclusion. Look at what the Hebrews says in verse 11 of chapter 8. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now what that means is, is that everyone will have the same access, irrespective of their gender or race or socioeconomic uh, status or denominational affiliation. See, religion leads to conflict and exclusion, but the gospel makes equality and inclusion possible. Let me explain. Uh, religion leads to conflict because it also always leads to exclusion. Richard Lovelace, who I quoted earlier, goes on to talk about religious people. And man, he's so helpful. He, he describes what he, quote, a compulsive floating hostility. So here's how he describes a church where the, the operating system is still religion and not gospel Christianity. He says, a congregation of Christians who are insecure of their relationship to Christ, can be a thorn bush of criticism, rejection, estrangement, and party spirit. Now, what's he describing? Notice the problem isn't that, is that these people are insecure. They don't know where they stand with God, right? Their consciences haven't been perfected. They're unsure in the depths of their heart what God thinks of them. And because of this, what happens is, is they become hypercritical of other people. 
They become defensive of their own opinions uh, or, or their positions, and the result is exclusion. Party lines are drawn. Churches split. See, there's no power in religion towards equality and inclusion because in religion, the way you get to God is by being good or by being right. And so it automatically makes some people feel superior to other people, which creates self-righteousness, which leads to exclusion. So you can base your identity on having good theology. And you can use your, good the- your grasp of good theology to quiet your conscience and to feel better about yourself. But if you do that, what will happen is, is you'll begin to exclude people who don't have the same doctrines as you and you'll treat them as if they're stupid. So what have you done? You've made doctrine your righteousness, you see? The way you know God's happy with you is that you're right. And so if you believe that, then you'll work hard to prove that everybody else is wrong. And what is the result? Exclusion, division. Or if you, you know, you can do this with anything. You can do it with parenting style. You can do it with homeschool versus private school versus public school. I mean, we, you know, so... That's what religion does. It creates exclusion. So then, how does the gospel make obedience toward this truth possible? How does the gospel provide the power we need to avoid self-righteousness and to include people who are very different kinds of people? Well, what does the gospel teach us? We're saved by grace. Not by being right. Not by doing it right. Not by being good. There's no scale from 1 to 10 by which we can judge ourselves against other people. We are all equally lost and without any way to commend ourselves to God. You see, grace is completely egalitarian. Grace and self-righteousness can't coexist. Grace and exclusion can't coexist. The gospel, see, drains your life of all of your self-righteousness, and the result is inclusion, not exclusion. It's the church becomes this beautiful kaleidoscope of different colors and shapes and sizes Because we're all made right with God on the same basis. Not our own works, but the works of Christ. And so this diversity of the church screams that salvation is by grace. So the gospel's power towards inclusion. To befriending people who are different than you. But thirdly, community versus individualism. He goes on to say, quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, about this new covenant. That God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, people, not persons, people, community. And so religious people tend to take a consumer approach to community. Christians take a covenantal approach. Let me explain one more time. Again, the self-righteousness and the underlying insecurity of religious people cause them to take a consumer approach to relationships. They relate to people by saying, well, you know, as long as you're meeting my needs, then I'm going to stay in a relationship with you. But if you fail to meet my expectations, if you don't keep your end of the deal, then I'm, I'm out, you see? What do they do? They're relating to other people the way they think God relates to them. You know, in religion, God says, prove yourself worthy and I will love and accept you. Consumer relationships mirror this. Prove to be helpful to me and I will stay in a relationship with you. That's a consumer approach. But the gospel makes it possible to approach relationships covenantally. It creates covenantal people who look at people around them and they say, wow, these people are a mess but I'm going to be true to them. I'm going to be faithful to them no matter how they treat me. I'm going to love them irrespective of their love for me. I'm going to meet their needs even if none of mine get met. I'm going to put their needs and their desires ahead of my own. Why? Because that's how Jesus has loved me. You see? You see how the gospel becomes the power for obedience? 
The conscience has to be, you have to be confident. You have to be one, completely assured of the love of God for you. Have the conscience quieted, have it perfected in order to be able to live the radical sort of obedience the scripture calls us to. So let me ask, are you building your life on God's grace? Is the gospel the operating system of your life, or is it still religion? See, the way you answer that, the way you answer that question is, is the feel of your relationship with God distance and formality or intimacy? Do you include people who are different than you, or do you exclude them? And or are you a consumer, or are you covenantal in your relationships with people? Where do you need to repent? If the gospel is the inner heart dynamic and power for obedience, then where do you need to believe the gospel more deeply? Where are you living in unbelief? Where's the gospel not sunk in? What areas of your life do you need the gospel to sink in so that you can move out in love for God and love for other people? Where? Come to this table. See? The law of God being written on your heart is dependent upon your conscience being cleansed. Is your, is your conscience noisy? <laughs> Are there accusations and condemnation every day, every moment? Is that your every moment experience? The invitation is come to this table. See, it's appropriate that we would come and celebrate this meal together this morning. So let's pray as we prepare to come and do just that. Lord Jesus Christ, would you come as we meet and gather around your table now? Uh, And would you use this, this sacrament that you have given to your church in the way that you have designed for it to work, that it would come and would impress, it would be a sign and seal to us, that it would impress, that it would authenticate the reality of the love that you have for us. That it would overcome all of our fears, all of our accusations, all of our guilt, that we would come and as we partake of this meal, that the truth of the love that you have for us would be so powerfully real to our hearts that it would dispel all doubt and all fear and all guilt. So that we might become a people who can wholeheartedly, out of joy, and reverence and gratitude go and bear fruit that would glorify you. That's what we so long to do. And so come and you conscience to overthrow our guilt, to replace it with joy that would lead to obedience. And we pray these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. Every week during Lent, we are celebrating this meal together. And so we do so this morning. I remind you, as always, that as you prepare to come to this table, here is where... You feed upon Christ and on the promises of the gospel. Here is where before your eyes he is presented to you as the Savior whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. Here is his blood for you to put to your lips and to drink and to absorb into your body the very blood that Hebrews says is powerful enough to clean your conscience from all its guilt and condemnation. And so it's very important. Uh, and, it's, and it's very wise of us to do this uh, in a way that honors God and glorifies Him. And so to that end, I ask you to really think about two points of self-examination as we come to this table. The first is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a Christian? If so, come. We invite you to this table. It's not the table of Church of the Redeemer or the Presbyterian Church in America. It's the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He invites you. But if your faith is not in Him, what you need is you need Him. What you need is you need His blood. You don't need this cup. And so come and talk to Jonathan or I or one of our elders or somebody and, and, and settle, settle your relationship with God. And then next week or next month when we celebrate this meal, come back. Uh, and, but if you're a Christian, we invite you.
come joyfully and come reverently. But secondly, this is a table of reconciliation. And so if you are not at peace in your relationships with other people, if there's a need for you to go and to seek to be reconciled with others, uh, the scripture is very clear that to come and celebrate having been reconciled to God while not being reconciled to others would be great hypocrisy. Paul says it's the reason some in Corinth fell, fell asleep. That is, it's the reason they died. They didn't discern the body. And so we would just encourage you pastorally, go if there's a need to be reconciled. Go and do that work. And then again, come next week. Come next month and celebrate this meal together. There's no shame in that. Do the heart. That's good work. And so we encourage you in those directions, okay? And so we come to his table. Um, the way this works, I should say, is we ask that you come down the center aisle. There'll be men up here to serve you. Take the bread and the cup. Return on the outside to your seats. And uh, once everybody's served, we'll partake of the meal together. I would uh, say both Ron Avery and Gene Lanehart will be up here at the front. We just we realize that there may be, as we, as we do this meal, there may be areas where you just need somebody to pray for you. Areas where you need healing, physically, spiritually, whatever it may be, where your conscience is just eaten up and you need God to break through with the truth of the gospel. These guys are going to be here, and I just I encourage you to take advantage of them praying for you. So this is a time for you to find healing, and a time for you to find freedom, and a time for you to find joy, and a time for you to find victory over the condemnation that sin brings. Okay? So let's come to his table joyfully and reverently. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And he broke it, and he said, this is my body for you. And after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you, the blood of Christ that can purify the conscience. Take, eat, drink, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. And as I pray, uh, if, if the men would come. Lord Jesus, we ask and we beg and we plead that into our areas of unbelief and fear and self-condemnation that you would come as we celebrate this meal together, that you would do what you have promised in your word to do through it, that you would come and that as we feast upon you, that we would also feast with you by faith, that you would be present with us as we eat this meal together, that you would encourage our faith against doubt and fear and unbelief, Strengthen us in our fight against sin. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. As you feel that, you come. And take his blood, which can purify the conscience from dead works. This is his blood shed for you. Let's pray one more time together. Have mercy upon us, O Lord Jesus Christ. In all the places where fear and unbelief still reign in our hearts and cripple us from the kind of obedience that you so desire for us to, uh, to offer, the obedience that you have made possible in your life, death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father, and the sending of the Spirit from heaven into our hearts, that the law of God might be written there, that we might live our lives with a new and powerful dynamic for obedience. Forgive us for making so little of all that you have done to make us a people who could live for the glory of your name. 
And so come in these moments as we remain together and take this meal and the the bread and the cup that we have just shared together and use them to drive home to our hearts the truth of the love that you have for us and the truth that salvation is by grace and not by works and therefore the offer that we would come boldly before the throne of grace with confidence drawing near to you that our hearts might find the courage and the hope that they so desperately need to obey you and to glorify you and to bear fruit that the city we live in might see and might turn to you. Oh, this is our prayer. And we pray you do these things for the sake of your great name. Amen. Uh, now he sends us out into the world. That is, what, that is how the service ends. There is a sending. We are his sent people. His ecclesia called together to worship him, to be sent out uh, to serve him and to serve the city he's called us to. And so as you go, the promise of the gospel is always that you do not go alone, but that the Lord Jesus Christ himself goes with you. Go into all the world, he says. And lo, I am with you to the end of the age. He is for you. He promises to meet your needs according to his riches. He has given to you the Holy Spirit. And so as you go, go, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, with absolute confidence of the Father's disposition towards you, that as I raise my hands over you, it is the, it is the sure sign that because of the work of Christ, God now smiles upon you. He looks upon you with favor and blessing. And so he sends you as his people in light of his promise to go with you. So receive the benediction then. And may this also be... Uh, food for you in your fight uh, for faith against the conscience that can just be nasty at times. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.